You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. So if you are new to our church, our church family, welcome. Glad you're with us. And I'm Jay. I'm the lead pastor. And we really are, you're joining, glad that you're joining us because we're in a series right now that is studying the many different um, realities of who Jesus was. Really, it's all about his identity. And you, you can see that reflected in these banners behind me the first week with our Gary Brashears. We looked at the reality that he's God with us. He's Emmanuel. We looked at last week, he's the son of Mary this week. And you can tell it's this week because it's white and different than the others. Um, Today, we're talking about Jesus, the son of David. Next week, Sean will take us through Jesus, the son of God. And then on Christmas Eve at our candlelight services, we'll celebrate and remember that he really is the light of the world. So, Jesus, son of David. Well, what, what does that really mean? And what is the, what is the significance of that? Um, because this series is all about identity, I kind of want to do a reset of what we looked at last week about Jesus's identity. And we'll jump back to that genealogy in Matthew chapter one in just a minute. But who are you, really? And, and who am I? And what we are reinforcing again with this series is the reality that your true identity is only understood and recognized and lived out by you and me when you understand and respond to Jesus's identity, we find our true identity in knowing and experiencing his in our lives. And so I thought, ah, just for fun, who does Google say I am? So I did a Google search to try to find my identity. And my full name is J.F. Messenger. And you might be wondering, what does the F stand for? It's fabulous. <laughs> Fantastic. Famous. Those of you who know me, it stands for full of it. But I went online, went to Google, and said, okay, Google, who am I? According to Google, I am a Formula 6 race car driver, and a pretty good one at that. I didn't even know there was a such thing as Formula 6. Or I am a firefighter serving in the Bronx in New York. Or I am an entrepreneur, and I am a businessman. Or I am an actor who um, acts, works out of this entity known as the Fear Factory, which is a little disturbing. I don't know what that's about, but... You Google JF Messenger, you're going to get all sorts of answers. And obviously, that's not who I am. The F stands for Franklin. Yeah, I'm named after my dad. My dad was James Frank Messenger. And everybody called him Frank. We always knew there was a sales call when they would say, hey, can we talk to James? Uh, no. Because everyone knew him as Frank. And so I'm named after my dad. And we live in this day and age where we can do some research and some, and some really deep tissue examination of our roots. You know, we have 23andMe and Ancestry.com, and we can figure out our genealogy. And genealogies are meaningful when it's you, but how about when it's someone else? Well, maybe for many of us, not so much. And there can be this temptation when we're reading through the Bible in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, we come to a genealogy like the one in Matthew, and we kind of skip on by it because, well, it just doesn't seem real relevant. But... It's incredibly relevant for us because, again, as we understand Jesus' identity, we will have a better idea of what ours is about as well. So we come to Jesus as son of David. 
today. And in that opening line of Matthew's genealogy that we looked at last week, it says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And when you're reading a genealogy like this, order matters. And so we look at that and that should get our attention because didn't Abraham live before David? And so if this was going in chronological order, wouldn't it say Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, as it's tracing his genealogy? But David is emphasized here, and that is the point. David is emphasized throughout this genealogy. Just kind of fun stuff, you know, maybe neither here nor there. But one thing that's unique about Hebrew versus our English language is in Hebrew, each of the letters has a numerical value. So there's a mathematical system behind those letters in Hebrew, not so much in English. But in Hebrew, when you add up the numerical value of David's name, it's the number 14. And for those of you who were with us last week, there are three groups of ancestors in this genealogy, and they're in numbers of 14. And that's on purpose. Someone reading this who understood this would absolutely realize, it'd be unavoidable, that Matthew was emphasizing that Jesus was the son of David. In fact, he does that more than any other gospel writer. Ten times he'll say, Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the son of David. Okay, so what's the significance of that? Well, as we looked at this last week, the fact that Jesus is um, the legal descendant of Joseph, but he is the biological son of Mary, you fuse those together, and it's the reality that Jesus is fully God, fully man. Therefore, he is the promised one. He is the Messiah. Therefore, if he's the son of God on that side of this reality, it means he fulfills all the promises that were given to Abraham and David, which is amazing, which then leads to the next reasonable question. Okay, so what are the promises that were given to David? Glad you asked. We're going to jump in a time machine, go back a thousand years before Jesus was born-ish to the time of King David, Israel's greatest king. And David is nearing the end of his life and he decides, I'm going to build a house for you, God. And God says, no, you're not. I'm going to build a house for you. And this is 2 Samuel 7 that Tony referenced earlier in our worship. God says, I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed the leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Amazing promise. He goes on, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. And now we're talking King Solomon, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And again, that was King Solomon who built the, built the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That is not King Solomon. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Again, echoes of this deeper promise, this future promise that would go beyond David's immediate heir, King Solomon. And so what all this translates to is this. David was being promised just in that passage that the people would have a land, that he would have an heir, that there would be a kingdom and a dynasty from his line that would be established forever. Now, 
Those of you who know your Old Testament know and appreciate that one of the many promises given to Abraham was that God would provide a land eventually for him and the people. So this promise of a land is kind of an overlay of that one. And so with that being said, he does get an heir in Solomon and a kingdom and a dynasty forever. And in Jesus's time, this is one of those future promises that quite honestly, a number of them probably struggled with because the line of kings had been broken. The nation had been conquered and exiled and there wasn't a king on the throne when when Jesus arrived. They were under Roman occupation. So it's like, how's this going to work? Well, clearly this is a a future promise. So let's cut to the chase then. What does this mean for you and me? I mean, okay, there's these future promises for God's people, but how about us now? What what are the realities that are here that impact your life and mine? Glad you asked. That's where we're going to go. Now we're going to jump to Mark. Mark chapter 12. And the setting here is people are still trying to figure out who Jesus is. In particular, the religious leaders. But they've actually moved from a place of wrestling with and struggling with who he is to now resisting and opposing who he is. In these in these um, uh, interactions that happen between them as we lead up to Mark chapter 12, they're testing him in order to trap him and discredit him. So they confront him. Where's your authority come from, Jesus? And then they start taking shots at him. They, they challenge him with the question, again, trying to entrap and discredit him. So who do we pay taxes to? And why should we pay taxes? And Jesus gives that a very famous quote, sometimes misapplied, but says, remember, Give to God what is God's, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. They say, okay, and then they take another run at him. Ask him a really tough question about marriage in heaven. See if he can answer that. He answers that. Ask him a question about what is the greatest commandment. And he says, do you remember? To love God and love people. That's, that's the Bible. You want to apply the Bible to your life? Love God, love people. That's, that's, he gives them the bottom line. So now they take a run at his identity. And this is what he says to them about being the son of David. When Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is Psalm 110. They would have known this. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. Now, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, they would have known Psalm 110, and they would have known this this promise. And so Jesus, in establishing and asserting his identity once again, basically says, as you just read with me, so how does this work? How many fathers call their sons Lord? I have a son. He'd probably think it was great if I had called him Lord. I would have thought that was pretty great if my dad would have called me as Lord. But that's not how things work. So how does that work? And that's Jesus' point. It works because it's me. I am the son of David. I am the descendant of David, but I am also his Lord. And what he is asserting here is some of what we looked at last week. He's fulfilling a promise. 
that God gave, that the promised king would come. And here he is, and the religious leaders by and large don't see him and don't recognize him. Why? Not because they couldn't, but because they wouldn't. Doubt is the honest wrestling with struggling with trying to believe something, right? I need more information. I need more time. I need more perspective. Unbelief isn't the lack of something like information, time, or perspective. It is the presence of something. It is saying, despite all the evidence in front of me, despite everything I see, I will not believe it. Not because I can't, but because I won't. I absolutely refuse to. I'm not going to believe that. I'm not buying what you're selling. That's basically what's going on with religious leaders here. It is not doubt. It is unbelief. The amazing thing about God is that he seems to have unlimited patience for those who were genuinely wrestling with doubt. Think with me to, the, to Easter and to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. What does he spend his time in the weeks that follow after he's risen from the dead doing? Going to people, giving them what they need to believe in him. You see that over and over again. And that, by the way, is a spiritual reality for you and me. We need God's help to believe, every single one of us, me and you included. So God seems to have seemingly endless patience and willingness to work with those of us who doubt. He has limited patience for those who refuse to believe. Which brings us to this reality. There were over 300 predictions, prophecies that had to come true for Jesus to be the Messiah. And these were made hundreds, many of them, thousands of years before he showed up on the scene. And him fulfilling the son of David was an amazing fulfillment of amazing promise. But, but he fulfilled so many more and as we looked at last week, if he honors this promise, it means he's going to honor all his promises, which means that God always does what he says he will do. Do you believe that? I hope you do, but some of you don't, I would guess, in a gathering this size. There are some of you who are wrestling with this, but it's not because you're, you're, you're genuinely doubting or struggling. It's because God has revealed himself to you and you've said no. Or, or God has shown himself to you and you said, no, nah, I'm, not, I'm not buying. And God has limited patience with that. And once again, in his love and mercy and grace, he comes to you and me again and gives us a chance to step outside of that. But, but those chances are not going to be endless. And we see that come to fruition in this passage because now things are going to shift gears and Jesus is going to confront these religious leaders in their unbelief and he's going to expose them. And look what he says. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes, be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. I'd, it's easy to read this, at least for me, and to kind of read on by and go, whoa, what is Jesus really saying here? He's saying, don't follow the example of your leaders, your religious leaders. 
because there's hypocrisy between what they say and what they do. And actually, this can be translated, beware of the teachers of the law. I mean, in this, in this language, in this wording, in the original language, this is what you tell someone when they're headed towards imminent danger. And that's the flavor of what Jesus is saying here. It's all about being seen, about being known, about having followers, about being influencers, about being recognized. It's all about them. And if that wasn't bad enough, he accuses them of devouring widows' houses, meaning that the religious leaders of the time, you know, they didn't get a salary. They were supported by the people and by gifts from the people. And evidently, some of these religious leaders were manipulating widows who were some of the most vulnerable um, in difficult place folks in that entire culture. They didn't have the support systems that we have now. And if you were a widow and you didn't have family, but you were completely on your own and it was desperate and dire. And these are the people who the religious leaders are taking advantage of, manipulating, extorting, whatever they were doing. It's, it's unbelievable, but it's not. Because how does our culture tell us we should live? What does culture tell us about being seen, being followed, being recognized? What does it tell us about the resources that we have, the power that we have? Well, doesn't our culture over and over again tell us an example to us? You get power, you consolidate power, you use power in order to crush and cancel your enemies. Or you indulge your passions wherever they take you, you decide. You serve your interests, even if it comes at the expense of others. And you only help people who somehow are going to be able to help you. Because if there's nothing in it for you, then don't waste your time. Those messages come at us from our broken culture over and over and over again. And basically, it's the exercise of God, not. I'm God. I'm, I'm king. You see, what we begin to realize when we look at the actions and the attitudes of these religious leaders, they didn't recognize Jesus as king because they had another one. They were their own kings, and that is the reality. Either Jesus is your king or you are. Which surfaces this next reality. As the son of David, he is the preeminent king. And preeminent isn't really a word we use very often, but it means surpassing, unparalleled, the only. It is God, not. It's the inverse of what was being lived out here. And some of this is intuitive. Some of it isn't in terms of understanding our relationship to God as king. We don't have a king, right? We have presidents, and maybe some of them have acted like kings at times, but we, we, we don't have a king. But we don't have to have a king to intuitively understand what this means if Jesus is king. It means you don't tell a king what to do. Jesus as our king is not the divine consultant. He's not the divine life coach. He's not the divine advice giver. When Jesus, as our king, asks us to follow him, he really does expect us to follow him and to trust and obey him, even when it doesn't make sense, even when we don't feel like it, even when we don't understand. 
A king is someone you follow. So what does it look like when he's our king? Well, let's look at what that means for that bent we just talked about. When you have power and resources, you use those to help and serve other people, especially people who don't benefit you. It means that you focus your passions, not necessarily follow them, you focus them to serve God's agenda and to build godly relationships. It means you don't crush and cancel your enemies. It means you forgive them. It means you overcome evil with good. And it means you join the divine rescue mission of the kingdom of God, that wherever we see brokenness as Jesus followers, if we can do something about it, we do. Even if it doesn't personally benefit us. Because that's in part what it means to live on his terms instead of instead of ours. And you know, at the end of the day, his way, his terms are always so much better than ours. What does he promise us? Blessing, reward. I'm not sure I believe that. That's the problem right there. Do we really believe who he says he is and what he does? And now Jesus beautifully, compellingly, powerfully is going to set up this compare and contrast between the religious leaders and a widow of all people. Look at what this says. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. These are people bringing their offerings. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, she gave out of her poverty and put in everything, all she had to live on. Now in your notes, I think I said, he is the powerful king and he is that. But I think even more so, this illustrates that he is, he is the personal king. Jesus values the undervalued. Jesus notices those who others don't. I mean, isn't that the story at the heart of Christmas? Who does Jesus come to? A poor, impoverished teenage peasant girl in a backwater town that hardly anyone's heard of in a stable that smells like, well, you know what stables smell like. That's where the king is born. Yep. That's the kind of king he is. What a beautiful picture of his love. Because in the eyes of that culture, that widow was a worthless person giving a worthless amount. And Jesus turns that completely on its ear and says, this is the example of what it means to love God and to love other people. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's real. And it's, and it's our story 
I remember however many years ago it was. I've been here too long. They all blend together. 13, 14 years ago when we started our Advent Conspiracy Focus, when we birthed our community Christmas party right after we built the second floor here and had the means to do it. I remember talking with folks in those early years, legitimately saying, why are we doing this? My, my kids don't go to that school. My kids probably never will go to that school unless we move. And I don't know anyone at that school. So why are we doing this? Why are we providing these, these resources? And the reality is that God has blessed us and we want to be a blessing to others. And yes, God in his goodness, he blesses us so that we're blessed and we can enjoy that. But he blesses us as well so that we can be a blessing to others, not just keep what we have for ourselves. And you know what the reality is? I have been in seasons in my life where I've needed help. Jamie, in our early years of marriage, boy, we, we barely got by as a young couple. And then when we had young kids, holy cow, they're so expensive. I love them. But how are we going to do this? And part of spiritual maturity isn't just giving and being a giver. It's also when you need help receiving it. It's a both and. So therefore, I'm not a pro, well, maybe I am a project for those of you who know me, but we don't look at people that way. No one's a project. We're all people. And God, when he blesses us, expects us to be a blessing to others. So why do we give resources to East Gresham Elementary? Because we love them. Because they're our neighbors. Because God has, has done this for us. He's, he's, he's blessed us. And man, I know for a fact a number of you through the years have altered your Christmas traditions in order to generate the resources that we can give and bless East Gresham Elementary with. We have. I mean, what Jamie and I give to the mission and vision and the other things we give to beyond that comes from another bucket. This has come from us deliberately modifying traditions in order to generate some resources in order to to give to this because it matters. I mean, look what, let's celebrate a little bit about what God did this weekend and we'll continue to do tomorrow night. So one of the teachers told us that on Friday night when we did the, the, the first party, that um, about a quarter of the school called out sick that day. There's a lot of bugs going around, a lot of sick kids, a lot of sick families, but still over 700 people came through the doors Friday night. Over 200 of you through the course of this week have volunteered in some way, shape, or form. And this is a guesstimate on my part, but I think our dinner team served plus or minus 900 meals. A number of them were um, in the kitchen for days before the actual event, 12, 13, 14 hour days, preparing everything. For the first time in our history, you donated all 225 of our food boxes. We've never done that before. That was epic. Yeah, that was amazing. Somewhere between 40 and 50 of those will be able to be distributed to our folks from Hogan Cedars. And by the way, it's been in our plan, it's been in our hopes for years in the strategic plan that the elders and staff and I work on to somehow at some point extend our resources beyond East Gresham to another school in our community. And in previous years, we've been able to do a little bit, but this is the first year we've truly meaningfully been able to leverage resources for Hogan Cedars as well. 
because of your generosity. And that's going to happen tomorrow night. 55 Christmas trees. We'll give some more away tomorrow night. 278 toys yesterday. 122 families came through to get those. The clothes closet, you brought in so many clothes. And there's no way to quantify how many of those went out the door, but a lot. Crafts, I was up in the pinata room on Friday night because there's candy there. Come on. And someone has to test that and make sure it's suitable for the kids. I'm a giver, and it's for the children. (laughs) But I'm seeing pinatas still in my sleep. We're making these pinatas and making these pinatas, and we made hundreds, and there still wasn't enough. I mean, we just went through pinatas like crazy. That's not the only craft we did, but there were candle holders, all sorts of stuff. The cafe served gallons of hot chocolate. I don't know how much hot chocolate they dished out, but a lot. You guys, I think that's something to celebrate. God is good. God is great. God is the king, and he has blessed us. And therefore, at every opportunity, we want to be a blessing to others. Now, a little vision for you and for me. Starting January, once again, for the first time, we are making the choice and putting ourselves out there a little bit to extend our backpack blessing resources to Hogan Cedars and to sustain that. We've had a Backpack Blessings program with East Gresham for many, many years, and basically, for those of you who are new to this or are not quite sure about it, we we put these backpacks together, stuff them full of food, send them home with kids who we know are at risk for just going through the weekend without any food, so it literally feeds them. Um, through the weekend, and then they bring it back, and we fill it back up again, and so it goes. And East Gresham um, focuses this on the families that need it the most, because we work in close partnership with them. But for years, once again, in our strategic plan as a leadership, we've prayed and looked for the opportunity and hoped for the opportunity that we can expand what we do for East Gresham to another school in the area. And I'm excited to tell you that that's going to happen sustainably starting January. There's going to be 20 backpacks every weekend that will go out to the door to Hogan Cedars. Yeah, that's really, really exciting. And that's why we ask you, for those of you, again, who God has blessed in this way, and not all of us fit this, but some of you have additional resources that you look to give for your year-end giving. And that's why we've unapologetically asked you to consider giving it to the mission and vision here because that's what's going to enable us to continue to do things like this Hogan Cedars expansion of the help that we, that we give. And that will help sustain it. Plus, January and February are usually pretty lean for us as a church family, because, I think because all the bills from December come due. So whatever the case, that's where we'd love to see those resources go. Because you see, we say this often, or at least I do, and I do it deliberately because it's so meaningful and helpful to me, but you don't add Jesus to your life. It doesn't work that way. You don't add Jesus to your life. You make him your life because then he transforms your life and makes you into the person he always intended you to be. As our worship team comes and we celebrate, Jesus is the promised king. He is the preeminent king. There's no king like him. He is the personal king. He is the powerful king. He is the present king. That is not the question. This is the question. Is he your king? We're going to sing and worship because he is the king. So let's do that together. Thank you.
Amen. Yesterday when I was just thinking through, you know, Lord, what how do you want our, our time of gathered worship to end? And I was reminded, I think, by the Holy Spirit of this passage out of out of Matthew 20, and I was reading through this passage and knowing we'd be singing this song, Glory to God in the Highest, at the end, I just, I started singing it, you know, as I'm reading my Bible. Jamie kind of looked over at me and went, okay. Because I have my microphone off for a reason when I sing. And anyway, um, this, this passage spoke to me, and it seemed like the Lord was telling me, you know, Jay, the community Christmas party, that, that, is, that is what I want you to be about but this isn't just about an event. It's about a lifestyle. It's about a way of living because we get a picture of what things will be like when Jesus comes back that final and second time. It says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And this is Jesus talking. He says, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the, and the goats on his left and then the king the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat I was thirsty you gave me something to drink I was a stranger and you invited me in I needed clothes and you clothed me I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in? Or when did you need clothes and we clothed you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. That is a picture of what it looks like to follow the king, not just with this community Christmas party this weekend, but with our lives as we go from here. We have a culture and a world that is broken, that is looking for identity in all the wrong places, that is looking for hope and purpose. And we have that because we know the true King. So my prayer for you is that you will go from here and you will make him real by what you say, by what you do, by how you love others. Let me pray that over all of us. Lord, I thank you once again for each person here. I pray for any who are wrestling with you as their King, that they would choose to follow you, to trust and obey you, even if it's difficult, even if it's hard. Because Lord, you promise us blessing and reward for being faithful to you because you are always faithful to us. We celebrate what you have done and are doing through the resources of this incredibly generous church family. And as we go now from here, would we not stop being the church, but would we live a lifestyle that points people to you by what we prioritize, by what we say and do, by who and what we love and how we love. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus, our promised risen King. 
And God's people said, amen. So go and live for him. We hope to see you next week. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.